Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. For my yoga teacher friends who are interested in working with the pregnant population, Prenatal Yoga Center offers an 85-hour Yoga Alliance certified program based on our three-pronged theory of prenatal yoga, asana, education, and community. Once a year, we hold our three-month immersion program in New York City. For those who cannot attend this training, Caprice and I are now traveling to different locations holding our training at hosting studios where we will spend six days working together, exploring and learning about prenatal yoga. This training consists of more than 50 hours working together. We also created a whole membership website with more than 20 videos corresponding directly to the manual you will receive. For more information, check out our website at prenatalyogacenter.com. Hope to work with you soon. Take care. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Blaschenberg, and I am your host of Yoga Birth Babies, and we are going to go a little into the health and science today, and we're talking to Ann Estes about microbiome, and as I was talking to Ann before we got started that this is an area I'm incredibly interested in, but an area that I actually really don't know much about, so it's a good thing that we have Ann here to talk about it, so let me tell you a little bit about her first. Anne M. Estes, PhD, is the human host of the microbiome blog, Mostly Microbes. As a microbiome scientist and mom, she is passionate about distilling the rapidly developing microbiome literature for parents, childbirth educators, and medical professionals so they can make informed medical and lifestyle decisions. Anne has two girls, aged three and eight, who inspire her to come up with creative ways to teach everyone about the amazing world of microbes. She's also a contributing blogger to Lamaze International blog, Science and Sense Sensibility and microbe.net, an academic blog about microbiome for built environments. She's also a postdoctoral fellow at the Institute of Geome Science in Baltimore, Maryland, where she studies how microbes and their animal hosts work together throughout host development. Thank you so much for being here and welcome. It's so great to have you. And um, I guess we're just going to jump in. Um, so let's start with a, what is microbiome and why is it important to consider? Right. So the microbiome is really just any collection of microorganisms that are living with another organism. So as humans, we care about, you know, the, the organisms that are in and on side of us. But, um, but there are bacteria and, and phages and all these other neat things that are associated with other organisms as well. So what's important for us and the area we know the most about is really the gut microbiome. So these are the bacteria primarily that live in our gut. But we're also starting to learn now there's some viruses that are actually helpful viruses called bacteriophages. And we're not talking about those today because <laughs> that's a whole other world that's just now getting started uh, to be explored. This is really fabulous. Um, but, you know, as moms, what we really care about is actually – a little bit farther down, which is uh, the vaginal microbiome, especially, and it's very important, uh, especially during birth. So that's just the collection of microbes that are present in your vagina naturally. And um, the and they actually do the composition, so what, what kinds of bacteria 
are present actually change throughout your your monthly cycle. Oh. And so that's kind of interesting. And it gives us, and it actually is um, the types of bacteria present and how many of them there are actually also, um, that seems to be tied to hormones, which is really, really cool. And I think is one of those things that's going to kind of change how we think about the importance of labor with birth. But that is all, you know, data kind of coming down the line. So we're not there. And I apologize for my voice. I've been fighting viruses left and right myself. <laughs> not beneficial ones, but anyway. Um, no worries at all. Yeah, so, so there are microbes and microbiomes associated with all the different parts of your body. The ones that moms probably care the most about are the gut and uh, vagina. Okay. Yeah. I figured I did a little research and it started to make sense that, um, different parts of the body had different parts of different microbiome. So let's talk a little about pregnancy and then we're going to talk about labor and birth. Cause I know those are really big areas for a lot of moms to think about. Um, we'll talk about the C-section and the, and the seeding and all that, but let's start a little bit with, um, what can affect the mother and baby's microbiome during pregnancy? Is it stress? Is it food? Is it medication, environment, all the above? <laughs> Everything. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so I mean, again, there's two different microbiomes that moms really care about primarily um, during pregnancy, which is the gut microbiome, because honestly, um, and, and you probably know this as a, as a doula, and a lot of moms are always embarrassed about this, or I don't, I hear moms are embarrassed about this, uh, that, you know, during labor, you might worry that you're going to poop on the delivery table, right? Mm -hmm. And babies come out with their, um, one of the first great questions I had from a doula was, you know, why do babies come out with their nose and their mouth, like, close to the anus? And the reason is, like, that's an important microbiome for us to pick up. So the stool microbiome is important. So that's what's coming from your gut. I know that sounds gross, but, you know... Um, that's the reality. <laughs> that's the reality of things. And, you know, if you pay attention to other mammals, they often, you know, eat each other's stuff. And anyway, we'll not go into that because I know it's gross for most people. Anyway, um, so, so, you know, your diet is really important because that's going to uh, contribute to what bacteria are growing in your gut and are going to be in your stool that are going to be passed on. And so, um, yeah, hi, you know, this is where everybody asks me, do you take probiotics? To which I say, no, I take prebiotics. I eat right. You know, I eat lots of fruits and vegetables, and even when, you know, I stare at a piece of cake and think, ooh, that would be so yummy, <laughs> you know, you reach for the kale instead because you know that, like, it makes a difference in how you feel, or at least it does for me. Actually, I've taught um, my kids, it's really kind of funny, we have two little sayings to get them to eat, that they need their protein, and then they make little muscles to go big and strong, and then when, they're, and then when they haven't had their uh, fruits and vegetables, I always talk about fruits and vegetables give you good poopies, and so... And so I know my listeners are probably like, Deb, this is too much information, but it actually really helps my two-year-old eat the fruits and vegetables because she really is kind of a carb fiend and would eat mac and cheese all day long if she could, but she'll eat yeah. the, you know, the kiwi or the cucumber because she knows it's going to give her good poopies. Like that is actually how I've put that in their brain. So I don't know if that's kind of the prebiotics. Okay. Okay. I actually talked to this woman who has recently started a microbiome company to kind of look at stool consistency and, and like the bacteria present in your poop um, for health because her husband had Parkinson's. And, you know, if you want to read more about that, you can find that on my website. But um, one of the things she said is, you know, she sends with their kit a Bristol stool chart, which is how doctors and clinicians tell whether or not you've had a, uh, you know, what, how firm or how liquidy your poop is, mm -hmm. it's really a good gauge of health. Mm -hmm. and, she, and, you know, like, this is actually probably what our ancestor did was every day kind of go, oh, ooh, looks like I need to eat some more, you know? Yeah. And it's really, yeah, I've, I've kind of gotten my eight-year-old more like paying attention to that and saying, oh, yeah, that wasn't quite like a smooth snake. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I hear you. I'm all about using the poop for <laughs> convincing the kids to eat right. Because it's... It's a cause and effect thing, and kids understand that. Mm -hmm. So that would be the prebiotics. Now, what about probiotics? So the probiotics, um, honestly, those should be things that are in your body already. Oh, okay. So this is what we're inheriting from our mom, hopefully, and acquiring from our environment. And the idea is that 
you know, in in an ideal world where you don't have lots of antibiotics and, and things like that, you know, you've acquired a microbiome that works for you with your own um, genetics because we're all different, right, in so many different ways. So, um, so generally what, and, and what we found about that is it's really, it doesn't change very much. So you can hit it with antibiotics, and unless you're hitting that multiply with many times with antibiotics, your um, the your basic native microbiome is going to pop back up. So okay. it's only when you have you know series of antibiotics one after another after another that you really can get into serious trouble. So it's mm-hmm. not necessary to take because whenever we've had antibiotics, we always take probiotics. Is that not necessary? I also thought it helps with not getting a yeast infection. It does help with not getting yeast infections. It can help in that you're you're flushing out. Uh, I mean, you're you're kind of you are providing potentially good bacteria that are not gonna um, not gonna do any harm. Most probiotic bacteria that we have currently just go right through. Okay. But the thing is, so what you're doing? I always think of this as my weedy garden. So, you know, you go out in the uh, in the spring all excited, you dig up all the weeds, and you've got this great bare soil, and then if you wait a couple of weeks, instead of planting your seeds, you know, you're going to get weeds. You're going to get grass, in my case. And so um, so when you have antibiotics, it's like clearing that soil out. It's mm-hmm. completely um, barren, and so anything can grow in there. So if you put the right seeds in there, then they're going to grow up, and if you don't, you're going to put. You can have weeds come in, and the weeds will come in from your food and from your environment. So, um, so that's that's the benefit of antibi- of probiotics after antibiotics. But for the average person who's healthy, they don't need probiotics every day. Okay. That, that being said, you know, uh, Culturel, which has the Lactobacillus rhamnosus LGG. That has been found to be beneficial in clinical trials for um, some mood disorders like depression. So oh, interesting. Um, but again, it's something that's just going to go straight through your body. So in the case of antibiotics, sure. But for normal, everyday, most healthy people don't need them. Oh, good to they know. Right. Take care of what they've got. So prebiotics, probiotics, food. What about um, stress? Because I know, uh, I mean, pregnant yeah. women, it's a beautiful time, but it's, I mean, I think it's also a bit stressful because life, uh, as you know, is changing. And I even have a lot of the second time moms be like, oh, I've been through this. And they're actually more stressed because what they've established yep. as their, you know, their three, you know, the child and the two parents, or maybe it's just two, you know, parent and child, all of a sudden you're bringing another in and it really changes things. So how does stress affect the mom and baby's microbiome? Or does yeah. it? I guess I should ask I for it. say that, but yeah, as, as an academic who's always juggling a bajillion things and has two kids, yeah, stress, unfortunately, is actually really important in terms of kind of messing up your microbiome. Um, <laughs> I guess so, that's where the yoga comes in, at least, uh, at least I'm providing yeah, them with that. <laughs> exactly. So that's, you know, that's trying to keep yourself healthy. And one of the really interesting things that's happened with some of these citizen science projects it's when they collected enough poop from different people to look at the gut microbiome uh, differences over, across different people with different lifestyles and such. They found that sleep makes a huge difference for your microbiome, which mm. I hate to also hear in some ways because I'm just now, like, my, my daughters are eight and a half and three and a half, and I feel like now I can maybe get eight hours of sleep <laughs> once a week. <laughs> it's just horrid. So, you know, it does, um, so sleep's important too. And, you know, exercise, there's a link for, with exercise. There's, of course, a link with medicine, um, antibiotics, as well as some other things. But, you know, it's just like any other part of parenting, I think. It's just, you do the best you can. You try to take care of yourself. You try to put um, the right things in place so that, you know, you can get as much sleep as you possibly can. And um, you can eat right and, you know, be, I think this is where it, the hardest part of parenting for me and trying to take, is trying to take care of myself and putting pieces in place so that I can. So. Yes, I, I understand that. And I, I agree. So this is, this is also where, as a, with mom guilt, like the thing you could kind of do to convince yourself of this is I'm not actually taking care of me. I'm taking care of my microbes. 
So there's thousands of these little critters that are dependent on me in order to feed them correctly and take care of them that will then take care of my kids. So, you know, if it takes that, because my brain needs that Mm -hmm. in order to take care of yourself, you know, maybe that's the the answer too. (laughs) No, that's great. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. Now, can the... Mom, so we're about, I guess a lot, my other question was, can we change the microbiomes? I guess we can, because if we're getting good sleep, we're trying to reduce our stress, we're eating well, um, environment, what about a lot of my, um, you know, I'm based in New York city, but you know, of course this goes everywhere. What about environment? Is environment going to change the microbiome in the vagina and gut? Um, more gut than vagina, but, um, yes, I don't know that literature as well as some of the other there's a lot of really neat work um, on the built microbiome, so the microbiome of buildings that we live in oh. and work in and things like that. Uh, the leading blog for that is written by academic researchers, more to other researchers, but it's pretty it's pretty well written, so I think the average person can understand it too. It's not all scientific jargony. Good. Um, and that's the microbe net, M-I-C-R-O-B-E dot net. Right, I'll put that in our, our uh, show, show notes. Yeah, they're really good at trying to communicate to, um, to people about the built microbiome. And, um, and yeah, so there's a huge difference between people who spend time outside in nature versus spending time in buildings. And um, there's differences. Actually, I guess I have a blog post on... Um, even like people who vacuum their house more than twice a week, which like ours maybe gets <laughs> once a month. I, mean, I don't know people who do this. Maybe they have a Roomba or something. <laughs> um, but there's a difference in the microbiome there as well. Oh, that's really <laughs> interesting. Yeah, because it's all about exposure. What you, you know, especially with kids, what you get exposed to as a kid, those challenges strengthen you. And, you know, once you've had those challenges, then you're not going to overreact to them in, in the future. So you know, it's okay. Like, you know, I'm certainly not a germaphobe. My husband a little more is than I am. But um, <laughs> I I was not one that carries around the hand wash. And, like, you know, I grew up playing in the dirt. So I kind of feel like yeah. a little dirt's probably good. I want to shift a little bit to a concern that many of my pregnant moms has, which is GBS. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah, so that's group B streptococcus. So, um, and I was trying to look up the numbers before we chatted, and I, I didn't find them, but I know evidence-based birth has a really good post on um, GBS, and she, and I think she has all the numbers there. Basically, what happens is you have everybody, or group B streptococcus can be carried by, um, I think it's 10 to 30% of moms naturally, and cause no problems. And it really doesn't cause problems in adults in general. The problem is that sometimes, and it's it's really, really a small percentage. It's only like one out of a thousand births, or, or it's it's pretty small. Where those where some babies where the moms are colonized, okay, so that's already a small proportion of your moms. Some of those babies, uh, the group B strep, when it gets into the when it when the babies get it in their gut, it actually can cause um, meningitis. Hmm. So it's there's two different kinds of meningitis. There's late and early onset, and so you know it's one of these things where in the U.S. we really worry about it a whole lot, um, but in a lot of other countries they don't. So in other countries, it's more of a let's watch and watch the baby really closely and see. So they don't and, do the the groupie strep test or the swabbing the anus and the vagina. 
show. Oh, wow. Because I know that was, that's a huge stress point for women that are GBS positive. And right. then it's like, when are we get to, the, you know, because for those that are listening, what it is, it's, um, it's bacteria that lives in the anus and vagina and the moms in, in the U.S. have to get two rounds of antibiotics four hours apart. So that is a stress point for a lot of women, especially if they've had, it's their second child, their first one was a quick delivery. To have to get two rounds of antibiotics really stresses people out. So, so how so, can we shift this? <laughs> yeah, so this is the problem is that I think a lot of um, evidence-based uh, practitioners are actually kind of going, well, you know, so maybe this isn't something we need to worry about. But, it, I mean, it is. Like, when you get meningitis in a baby, it's serious. It serious. And so that's the thing. It's kind of this, it, it's, it's, you know, it's a give and take. Are we over-treating, so, basically? We're treating everyone when it likely isn't everyone? I'm I'm not a physician, so I don't okay. I don't say whether or not we are or not. Um, it seems I mean from a statistical point, <laughs> um, the numbers are there's not that many babies that get it. But you know if you're that one baby, then you care a lot about that, right? Of course. So, um, so I think I think what the and the other thing we're finding is, and I don't think this is published yet, but um, it seems like it can fluctuate um, between you know, your last test and right at labor and birth. So that's part of the problem, too, um, that we may be over-treating people who don't need to be treated because maybe it's it may have shifted, it may have, you know, gone down at that point in time. Is there anything uh, that can influence that? Because I, <laughs> I did, I've done some wacky things when I was pregnant to try not to come up GPS positive and, and several of my friends have done some crazy things. One of my friends did, um, a tampon made of garlic in her vagina. Um, I mean, I've heard some, I had a friend that did yogurt, like, you know, I was going crazy on probiotics. Like are, are these wacky home remedies actually valid? Is there anything you've heard that has some merit to them? Or is this just people being like, I don't want to be GBS positive. So, uh, um, most of those are just wacky. The whole garlic thing, I, I heard about that recently. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe that. <laughs> that freaks me out. Um, you know, probably the least frightening of any sort of intervention would be to do um, lactobacillus-rich probiotics, but if you're taking it orally, it's not going to get, I mean, it would get into the gut, but if the GBS is in the vagina, Mm -hmm. then it's not going to get there. So, you know, you could do suppositories, I guess, but you know, I don't, I don't know. I'm still kind of um, overly cautious about messing up any equilibrium that's already there. (laughs) Um, So I, I guess in, I, I think, and, and it was something I really worried about too, especially with my second baby, where there was more evidence about the microbiome. With the first one, you know, she was eight, eight and a half years ago. There wasn't that much known about the importance of uh, the microbiome for vaginal birth and, and things like that. It was kind of more uh, the other things I'd studied that kind of made me worry about it. But um, where did I go with this? Um, so. Is it also, are we thinking though then if the mom is GBS positive and she takes the antibiotics, is that, and she's trying to have a vaginal birth, is that going to affect the microbiome in the vagina if she's been taking many a round of antibiotics? Well, and so that's the thing. It's this huge cost benefit analysis that we haven't really thought about, I think, as a society because, yeah, the importance of having mom's natural vaginal microbiome and gut microbiome passed on to her kid is really, really important. And, um, and so kind of bothering that with the rounds and rounds of antibiotics, I think is more of a concern, you know, maybe the idea of potentially screening the first time early on for GBS. And then if, if you have GPS that time, you know, trying to change your diet even more or heavily or, you know, something like that. Would, and then testing again for a second time and then talking to your, you know, pediatrician. Because I know some people will, what was it? It was something, you can delay the antibiotics in labor so the baby doesn't get as much or so that the mom's uh, 
microbiome isn't influenced as quickly because you know you've got some time there during labor usually. Um, so I, I think there's little ways around it. Because I've worked with women that have you know the idea is that they have at least two rounds four hours apart and then once that started if it's a long labor they could just keep getting it every four hours you know you know six seven eight times instead of just two rounds depending on if it's one of those 30 hour labors yeah so i'm assuming that's just you know it's going to disturb the vaginal microbiome but as you're saying the baby also gets it too the the antibiotic well yeah they're yeah, they're getting exposure to the antibiotics as, as well as they're getting exposure to just the altered gut microbiome. And so they're more likely, the problem is they're more likely to pick up environmental bacteria when they're first born mm-hmm. that might not be helpful to them. Okay. So, you know, things you can do in that case is like, you know, skin to skin is really important. It's so neat to see how kangaroo care has kind of um, increased in people's mindful mindfulness people are increasingly mindful about it because um that's a really important part of you know seeding your your baby with your bacteria as opposed to that of the nurse or the sterile hospital blankets or or the pseudo sterile hospital blankets or whatever so, um, there's so, so many reasons for skin to skin. I mean, the microbiome, the bonding, the oxytocin. Yeah. I love having more reasons. So let's shift a little bit now to labor and birth. So we've been talking about it's important to have um, a healthy vaginal microbiome for delivery. Can you talk about why? Like, what's the benefit for the baby? Yeah, the benefit for the baby is that they are getting a huge dose of what mom naturally has, which, again, it hopefully is something that is going to work with their, in their environment and with their genetics. Um, whereas if you're, um, if you're having a C-section, the babies, what we've found so far is that babies who are born vaginally have their microbes that are very similar to mom. And it's really fabulous that it's not just similar to mom. Like you, you can see, um, that the, the, um, vaginally born babies cluster more similar to other vaginally born babies than to the cesarean babies. But what's even more amazing than that is it's really exactly similar to mom. So it's not, it's more similar. A baby is more similar to their mom than to another vaginally born baby or to another mom. So there's that, you know, really neat, um, specificity there. And then with cesarean born babies, what they seem to be colonized more with is skin microbes. And so they're missing out on a lot of these microbes that um, actually can kind of help their gut start building and protect their gut um, that can um, keep out a lot of the not as helpful bacteria. So skin microbes are more things like, you know, um, uh, Streptococcus and and just things that they belong, they don't belong in the gut. They belong on the skin. They have their own place to be. So is there enough research to show the benefits of, you know, I don't want to make moms that had a C-section feel badly. I'm just looking at the bigger picture, but the, is there enough research that's been done to show how the child grows and maybe a difference in their immune system from a vaginal birth to a C-section? Yeah, thank you. So so that's one of the biggest differences is that it seems like babies who are born via C-section um, are more likely to, to have diabetes and allergies and asthma and um, be obese. So we've seen this for a while and kind of wondered what the, why. And the, and the microbiome may be one aspect of why we see this with uh, cesarean births versus vaginally born babies. Now, everybody has a story of, you know, yeah, my kid uh, <laughs> was born via cesarean and she's skinny and my vaginally born baby is, is not. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I get that. But this is what the numbers say right now um, and what we've seen for a long time and kind of wondered why. So, um, do you have any answer to the why? Because that kind of fascinates me. Like, diabetes, obesity, you know, asthma, like those are some pretty big things just to, that differ from the method of birth. So all of those things are related to inflammation though. They're inflammation of the gut and inflammation that starts in the gut and then is more systemic and eczema is another one. So, um, so in the case, what it seems like is a lot of the bacteria that the babies are going to get 
when they're born vaginally are things that are known to kind of calm the immune system down. Like the phytobacterium is one of those key bacteria that kind of, it, it puts out specific signals to the gut saying, hey, I'm going to feed the gut cells. Um, I'm, I'm giving you this. Settle down. I'm a friend. It's okay. okay. <laughs> and, but those, those bacteria that are out on the skin, they, don't, they can't make those same things. They do so, totally different, something totally different. And so they're not giving those signals to the gut. Instead, you know, the gut, gut's kind of going, oh, wait, I'm not getting what I need. And so it's going to amount, amount uh, have, a, have a response that's more, you know, trying to shut those things down. Oh, interesting. And that can kind of trigger um, downstream effects. Other, so that's, that's that part makes, of it. That makes sense. I get that. Another thing, too, so, you know, there's two reasons for having a C-section, right? There's, there's those that are elective that really are a choice, right? Because sometimes it is a matter of scheduling or it's a matter of, you know, there, there's sometimes a choice. Um, and, um, and sometimes it's more of an emergency situation, right? And what we're seeing with those emergency babies is that they actually have a microbiome more similar to vaginally born. Oh, because they had the labor process. The labor process is so important. So it could be, again, it could be a hormone signal. So it could be that the hormones are, are you know, increase, different hormones are increasing during labor that actually are kind of recruiting specific bacteria or priming the body. I don't know. That is totally undone work. But I can see because of the... Um, some of the work that we know with the uh, hormone changes in the bacterial composition in menstruation, that maybe there is another connection there as well. So we'll, we'll see how that turns out. But that could be part of the reason that we see that emergency C-section babies actually have a more similar microbiome to vaginally born babies. Oh, that's interesting. Does it matter how long the baby's in the birth canal? Like if it's a quick birth or a long birth? I guess I'm going, this This that's is my own personal question. idea. It's like <laughs> my son, I literally pushed him out for five hours. It took forever. And my daughter was like six minutes. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, for a second baby, yeah. very different. So does that mean he was like coded and more and she just kind of got the whip through or like... <laughs> I, you know, it's so hard to know because we don't have that data yet. Okay. Um, and I, I, I have the same question. So my first baby was, uh, my first daughter was 20 hours of labor. My water broke early on because it was the monsoons in Tucson. And, um, yeah, it was long. It was crazy. It was painful. Pitocin, epidural, like, you know, episiotomy, whole nine yards almost. Okay, so I got about seven yards. But anyway, <laughs> it was long. And, and then the second one, yeah, 45 minutes, boom, done. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I wonder that too, they also were born both sunny side up. So, you know, they didn't have their nose and mouth down at the anus. So, you know, it does that make a difference. I don't know. I'd love to find out. We need, this is where we need more research done on, we need much better, um, initial data taken on things like the length of labor. You know, that was actually a lot of what was confounding some of this birth microbiome work for a while was that we were comparing all cesarean births to all vaginal births, and it wasn't as clear cut. When you pulled out those where um, their emergency versus scheduled C-sections, then you start seeing more of a difference. So, you know, I think we're going to, as we get more data, we can kind of, you know, these are, this is a scientist thing. You want more data. <laughs> But, you know, we can start teasing out some of these things. Mm -hmm. So So, can you you talk about the process um, of seeding the baby that's had a C-section? Because I've had some moms say, like, um, some mom, I had one mom, the baby, she had placenta previous. So we knew it had to be, you know, that you can't birth through a placenta, you know? So, but she, this was a concern of hers. Um, and she asked me about it and I said, you know, I don't know, but (laughs) I'll ask Anne because I told her I was doing this interview. (laughs) Yeah, no, and, and that was something that I've had really close friends have trouble with that as well, and so they, they had no choice. They had to have a C-section, right? So I totally get that. Um, but, um, yeah, so vaginal seeding. This is a new idea that was, um, it, it, it's, from what I understand from talking to the different researchers, it kind of came out of necessity. 
because one of the lead microbiome researchers, uh, Dr. Rob Knight, his only daughter was born via emergency C-section. And so he knew this data that was these data that were out there that, you know, it seems like there's a difference between vaginal and cesarean born babies. And so he always had like a good dork, you know, <laughs> always had, uh, swabs in his backpack. And so when he rushed to the hospital, when he heard his wife was in labor, um, after the baby was born, they spent hours swabbing mom's vagina and coating the baby with swabs. So, so she just had a cesarean birth, and then they're spending hours swabbing her vagina. Poor lady. <laughs> but, but, you know, I mean, as a mom, like, you okay, yeah. Stuff. You know, you'll go to all, all craziness for your kids. So, and, and, you know, they were, they had been monitoring both his and her microbiome, you know, throughout time. So they were a very unusual couple. Um, but after that, you know, he talked to the leading researcher who does the cesarean vaginal birth work. And she had actually had her babies at, by, by scheduled C-section because that was what was um, normal where in the part of the world where she was uh, when she was a mom. And so she, they started working on developing a gauze technique where you could actually collect the microbes from the vagina and then rub it on the baby um, as after the baby was born. Is this a good practice? If you know that the mom's vaginal microbiome is not doesn't have pathogens like GBS. I can't see the harm in it, but you need to know what is in mom's vagina before you're doing that. And mm-hmm. I think that's really key. Um, does it make a difference? We don't really know. I mean, it, there's an initial paper done by this, this scientist, and she's seeing that the bacteria from the swab do seem to colonize the babies, but they, whether it has an impact in health, they don't know that, you know, they've got a three month study and it's going to take five, eight, 10 years to follow those kids. And they need, they're doing a larger study, but the data just aren't here yet. So, um, I don't know. I was prepared and I talked to my doula (laughs) for the second baby about doing that. But at the same time, you know, her birth was so fast. My second baby's birth was so fast that I didn't, I was, my head was spinning and I didn't realize that the nurse had taken her and was, was scrubbing her off. Oh, that's too bad. And washing her. So, you know, maybe she swallowed something, you know, during the trip, even the short trip. And probably there were bacteria in her nose and, and mouth that the, the um, nurse didn't get, but you know, I mean, that's an important. So don't thing. wash the. That's a great thing for a lot of um, expectant moms to listen to. Of babies, don't. You know, I actually was taught as a doula and the mom teacher, don't wash them for a while. Like, put get that vernix in them, let everything coat. Um, yep. Yeah, let them just kind of marinate in all that. Let it marinate. It's a good thing. So, so I, you know, and that was one thing that I kind of later was like, oh man, she scrubbed my baby down. <laughs> But your head's spinning so fast sometimes with these things. So, you know, this is just part of it. Um, And and what you hope is that your baby picks up a lot of your microbes from your home. um, Because as soon as we walk into a room, we start shedding bacteria. So um, they will pick stuff up from your house. Let them play in the dirt. You know, that's an important thing. Um, Having dogs, they actually bring a lot of the outside environment in. So that's a really good thing as well. I've got a New Year's post that I need to kind of re, re tweak a little bit and then repost that talks about things like that. You know, exercise is great. Dogs are great. Dirt's great. <laughs> I don't want to open this can of worms too much, but as you mentioned, the home and yep. I, okay, I don't want to go too too deep into this, but is do, do you think there's a difference with babies that are born at home compared to the hospital with a microbiome? Again, I don't want to go too, too deep, but this just piques my interest when you said that. I'm like, oh, there's probably something very different there. I don't know. I, when I wrote that first Science and Sensibility post about the birth uh, di- a triad instead of dyad, talking about the importance of birth environment versus um, birth mode and then breastfeeding, uh, or first foods, I should say, um, I, I kind of looked through the literature. I couldn't find any data. I contacted the lead researchers for the built microbiome work, and nobody had done that. And they were really excited to think about that because this this is why I love communicating this kind of information to people who use it 
because, and, and as a mom, I think I bring something a little bit different because I think about that. You think about that. A lot of the scientists who are doing this, they're not thinking that way. Mm -hmm. They may be dads. They may be dads, you know, 30 years ago. <laughs> so, you know, they have a different perspective. And so bringing that out to them and saying, you know, hey, let's look at the importance of home or look at home births versus um, hospital and even labor general uh, wards versus labor delivery wards, you know, in a birth center versus um, a general hospital, you know, those could have a difference as well. And so we don't know. That's the short answer is we don't know. Let's look. Yeah, it just is makes starting to make sense. I mean, of course we don't know, but it's just something to kind of chew on. Um, I want to talk a little bit about breastfeeding and how that impacts the baby's gut and immune system. So the most fabulous thing about breastfeeding is the sugars. So there's, well, actually, let me back up. So just like we have a unique microbiome of our gut, we have a unique breast tissue, breast milk microbiome. Which this is fascinating. <laughs> so there's an argument right now between the, the lead people working on this, whether it's the microbes in your breast milk that then are being uh, transferred to the baby and colonizing the baby's gut, or if it's just the sugars in the breast milk that are influencing the bacteria that are growing in the baby's gut initially. Okay, so there's two different ideas. Either baby gets microbes from birth, and we feed those sugars, and those sugars influence who grows. Or, um, you know, we get some of those those bacteria from birth, but we also get them from the breast milk. And it could be a combination of the two also, where, you know, the sugars influence who grows, but, um, but there are also some additional bacteria coming through that might, maybe they don't stick around, but maybe they do something important as they're going through. Because we do see that with probi some probiotics, that LGG, um, uh, the lactobacillus rhamnosus LGG strain is, you know, one of those great examples. Um, and I can send you a link to that. Yes, that'd be great. So, um, so what's really cool about breast milk is, so we're mammals, right? Just like horses and cows and elephants and all those other fabulous mammals. Our breast milk has somewhere around 250 different types of sugars. Cows only have a handful of sugar, different kinds of sugars. Even our closest relatives, monkeys and chimps and apes, they only have, I think it's like maybe 100 different kinds of sugars. So as humans, we have these crazy diversity of sugars. And what's nifty about the sugars is they're so complex that... Um, most bacteria cannot break them down. They just can't eat it. And so, but your a lot of mom's uh, vaginal microbes that are passed on, that and some of her gut microbes that seem to increase in number right before birth, those can feed on these sugars. So this is the Bifidobacterium infantis is the one that's best known for doing this, and it can can break up these complex sugars like no other bacteria, and then it can feed other good bacteria that way. So you really drive who is present in the infant's gut. So a lot of the research being done on this has been funded um, in part by Nestle, which I know a lot of you know lactation consultants and, and such are going to go, oh, Nestle, you know, <laughs> because they, they do have, they, they really push their advertising of formula, and I completely I don't agree with that. You shouldn't be influenced one way or another by a company. But they have actually put a lot of good money into finding out why these different sugars are present. Of course, they're doing it so that they can replicate it yeah, in their formulas. Like, I know it's not uh, altruistic. But honest to goodness, them being able to replicate all 250 different sugars they're not going to be able to do that and the antibodies and all that. They're never going to get formula as good as breast milk. But in the cases when you have to use formula, you know, if they can get it all the closer, what we see is these breastfed babies that are exclusively breastfed, they have a really different microbiome that's the less inflammatory ba uh, bacteria than babies that are for fed formula. And so that's really important. We need those sugars to keep the good bacteria in check and let them grow. And, but sometimes, you know, with my first, I had a lot of problems pumping. She ended up being exclusively breastfed until 
seven months because she had a round of antibiotics at six months. <laughs> but, um, you know, sometimes that just doesn't work. I mean, I've also, I pump while I commute in the car. You know? Yeah, like, been there. <laughs> so, you know, that's not always feasible. And so if you, but once you start switching between formula and breast milk, the, the bacterial populations can change and they can change dramatically even within a couple of days or so. So, you know, if you could keep, if when you have to switch back and forth, you could keep um, the population from shifting too much, you know, even changing the degree to which it, it um, changes would be great, especially since the formula, the bacteria that can grow in the formula sugars, those are things like E. coli. They, they divide every 20 minutes. The beneficial bacteria, like the phyto, it divides every two hours. So if you change your formula to your formula sugars, you've got a bloom of E. coli that are going to, you know, quickly divide and take over the gut. And then they'll die as you're giving breast milk where they can't eat it. But the good bacteria can't uh, replace them as quickly. So you're always going to be kind of at this um, in you know, where, where your good bacteria are not going to be as numerous. So what can we do for the mom who, for whatever reason, can't do the switch between for whatever reason, doesn't have the opportunity to breastfeed. I think it's actually great. As much as I don't want a company to push their agenda, at least they're looking and saying, all right, we recognize breast milk is really kind of what we're looking at as the model. And now we're going to try to replicate that. So is there anything the, the mom can do if she doesn't have the opportunity to breastfeed and she is formula feeding? Yeah. And, uh, that's called a milk bank. <laughs> yeah. New York has one of the best ones. Yes, right? that's true. Yeah. So, and I actually, so what was it in August? I got to go to the, the U S breastfeeding conference, the sixth annual, uh, conference. And I presented some of the ways that I teach and talk to people about some of the models uh, a bean exercise I use, and then one with giant fluffy microbes to talk about how these sugars are so important. Um, and I met, I got to meet the people who are in charge of the milk bank there, and it was really fabulous to find out how how much what an extent they will go to to get milk to needy moms, and even moms, you know, that first six months is really really important, but they'll even work with moms of toddlers too. So. I, I think that's the answer, you know, and if it, if it's, you know, uh, yeah, I don't want to get into milk sharing because I know mm -hmm. that you, you really need to, this is a bodily fluid. You need to have people screen. Um, but, uh, the milk bank I think is the solution there. That's so. great. I love that suggestion. And I wanted one last little topic. And before we start to wrap up, and this is maybe a big topic, is there a, <laughs> is there a bigger impact on society with a third of babies being born via C-section in terms of the microbiomes that they're not receiving? Because you already mentioned that there's obesity, there's diabetes, there's a huge amount. So that means we're going to have more unhealthy people just starting off from, you know, changing society from how they're born. I think we already do. And you know, I also think the other thing that's really changed things, like looking back through my baby book, my mother was told, you know, in the 70s. Um, I'm there with you. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, but um, she was told at one month to quit breastfeeding. And, you know, she was a country girl who came into the city. And so it was also considered, you know, a, a country thing. I don't I haven't spoken to her that much about it. So I don't know exactly what her feelings were, but it's what the doctor told her, give up breastfeeding, it's not good. And then I'm sure there were societal pressures as well. And because I know I hear this from other people in, I'm from real, uh, rural Alabama. So, <laughs> um, so I, you know, I still hear a lot of this. And, um, and I think both that combination between C-section being more of a you know, it's, it's something that you can control. It's something that's, it can be scheduled. And also, you know, breastfeeding is, it, it's a pain sometimes. It's a nuisance. And it not being as uh, socially accepted. I've certainly been scorned by plenty of um, waitresses and, and other, you know, people on the bus or whatever with breastfeeding, even a toddler. Um, so, 
Um, yeah, I think that actually both of those things have impacted our health already, mm-hmm. and they're only going to continue to get worse if people continue on that trajectory. So I think where there's an, an option, I think if moms know that there is a reason, then, you know, it might change their decision. And then they can look into alternatives. Like, you know, I know uh, one of my doula friends does hypnobirthing, and that sounds amazing. And, you know, there's, I think there's different, I just hope that it would encourage people to look more broadly and kind of look into different reasons and different ways to do different things. Well, that's one way. That's actually how I approach a lot of my teaching um, is that if I give people the reason as to why we're doing, you know, X, Y, and Z, then they're going to see, all right, I should do this or I shouldn't do this for, for the bigger picture. If I just tell them, you know, practice your pelvic floor balancing exercise, they'd be like, whatever. I'm like, but if it helps you birth your baby better, you know? So I do believe like really my platform is giving the women the information to make a really informed educated exactly. choice as opposed to just hearsay from friends and family and what they read right. on, you know? So that's, I mean, that's one of the reasons I sought you out is because your information is something I don't think people really take into consideration, but it's so, so greatly important. So, that's why I started blogging is, you know, as a scientist, I kept hearing all these conversations and, and being able to talk to all these fabulous scientists doing the work, but we weren't getting that out to the people who could use this, who it actually could impact their lives. So that's why I started blogging and, you know, I, yeah, I hope it's helpful and I, I really appreciate platforms like yours where I can talk to people and welcome questions at, at the blog and all that as well. So thanks for, thanks for helping get that message out too. Oh, my pleasure. It's really, it's something I take great joy in and I had a great time chatting with you. I was a little nervous as I, as people before we got on, um, you know, I told Hannah that I'm just so not a science person, even though I want to be, but, um, you really delivered this information that I understood. And I think our listeners will. So thank you so very much. Well, thank you. And for those that want to know a little more about Anne, I'm going to have, um, her blog, the mostly, uh, mostly microbes on the show notes. Um, you guys can find out more about her. She also blogs for the Lamaz, uh, website, science and sensibility. So I'll put all out, all that out there. Thank you so much. Anne. it was really quite a pleasure speaking with you. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it too. All right. Go enjoy your day. Take care. <laughs> Bye. Bye. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.